Welcome to Computer Game Evolution, a podcast about the evolution of computer games. Episode 1.5, Playing with Moving Parts. In the early 1900s, as Elizabeth Meiji was getting ready to show the world the fattest cats in America, most people simply wanted to have fun. Sure, the technological marvels of the late 19th century had impressed and amused the masses, but no one had invented the way to entertain to suit all audiences and keep them drawn to it, asking for more of exactly the same forever. Well, some might say that at the time heroin was being marketed as cuff medicine for children and Coca-Cola actually contained cocaine, so... There's a good chance many US citizens were permanently blitzed, but that's not the kind of entertainment we're interested in. It does explain a lot, though. The thing about getting entertained early in the 20th century was that you still had to go out. Indoors, there were books, simple board games, cards, polite conversation, and not much else. Is that enough to tide over a city family with kids for a weekend? No. Outside, you could have real fun. You could go to one of those new movie theaters and enjoy a short, silent film. That's all they offered at the time. Okay, that kept the kids quiet for 20 minutes. Now what? How about a stroll through a shopping arcade? Not necessarily to buy something, but to do some window shopping. Look at adverts, posters, maybe there's like a puzzle there. It would be an area with heavy food traffic, so you'd inevitably run into early coin-op machines. They still weren't doing anything fancy, and they were barely interactive, but they were cheap. They could not be any cheaper. In the UK, those machines flocked seagull-like near piers, and asked for a mere penny to show you a naughty film clip, a working model of a thing, or to tell you a fortune. For convenience, clusters of these machines and vendor kiosks would have their own roof over them, so that you didn't get sunburn under the scorching British sun two days a year, more likely to shield you from the rain, and that's how they became known as the Penny Arcades. Or it could work the other way around. The machines were installed where people would be hiding from the sun to increase the odds that someone would spend a penny. There was some stiff competition for that penny, since in Britain, to spend a penny is an old euphemism for using a public toilet, dating back to the marvelous late 19th century and its coin-operated door locks. Yet even the low-key entertainment of the penny arcades and public lavatories would not keep the family engaged for long. To stimulate and overwhelm all the senses, they had to go to an amusement park. An amusement park is a mutated, oversized village fair. It's sort of a celebration, but it runs daily for months on end. It's sort of a happy public gathering, but there are hundreds if not thousands of people flowing around you and, frankly, you don't give a damn about any of them. It's a place where you can buy stuff, but it's mostly souvenirs and overpriced food. It holds various mass games and fun rides, but they're all facilitated by giant machines like carousels and roller coasters. It's a festival from the ancient and medieval times, converted into industrial-scale fun factory for the industrial age. Another thing you would run into at a fair would be various tests of skill or strength. Compete with others or simply attempt something difficult, and you might win a prize. 
It is this niche that the mechanical and electromechanical games would be filling in the first decades of the century. And that winning a prize part was important. At least that's what I gather looking at the photos and the descriptions of the early machines. I mean, really, what kind of weirdo would spend time and money and effort to earn some abstract points from a metal or wooden box and go away happy with just that? Only crazy people, right? In this regard, increasingly illegal slot machines were ahead of the non-gambling devices because they accepted coins and paid out automatically. Tests of skill, why would they need a coin slot? There were operators right there to attract people, verify the scores and hand out the prizes. They could take the cash. This line of thinking seems to have continued into the 30s, and that's where we will follow it after a short detour. In 1910, clouds began to gather over amusement parks. Metropolitan Opera House broadcast a performance in New York by radio. There had been other experimental broadcasts, but that one was special because its organizer was a certain Lee de Forest. He was an inventor in the then still young field of electronics, and in his experiments with a new toy, vacuum tube diodes developed a few years earlier, de Forest accidentally created a triode. In simple words, his triode was a tube in which electrical current passing from one electrode to another was controlled by a third electrode. So, if you applied a weak signal coming from, say, I don't know, a microphone to control a strong current going through the triode, you would amplify the signal. Triodes had a ton of uses, enabling long-distance broadcasting and cable communications more complicated than the Morse code, uh, made telephones more viable, and even helped with adding sound to movies. In the 20s, the new fad of public radio broadcasting swept across the whole world. At that time, radio could not make people stay at home yet, because early home receivers were pricey and built like luxury centerpieces for your living room. For years, many would listen to the radio in public places as it blasted out the loudspeakers. However, as this was going on, work on transmitting images was already underway, and television, as it spread and became more accessible in the 40s and the 50s, did deliver family entertainment to people's homes. Why go anywhere? See it all on the screen. By the second half of the century, big American amusement parks would go from a common sight to a rarity, due to prohibition ban on alcohol sales, the Great Depression, TV, and the 40s war effort making frivolous structures out of valuable metal and wood highly unpatriotic. Before all that went down, in 1924, Erie Manufacturing Corporation, or Erie Machine Company, surprised America with its new take on working models. The Erie Digger was a replica of a digger machine. It featured the vehicle on wheels, the operator cab, the boom, and the digging bucket itself, all in a big glass case. If you fed the machine one cent, you could rotate the crank that powered the fully mechanical contraption. The digger inside would swing the bucket over the floor of the case, drop it down at a random spot, close it, raise it, return to the starting position, and release the contents right over a gap in the floor of the case. But it wasn't sand that it was digging, I'm fairly certain it was sweet. 
and when they went down that hole, a shoot led them to an opening in the front of the device, rewarding the lucky player. It was a coin-operated working model, a vending machine, and a bit of a gamble, but, you know, legal. A winning combination, as it turned out. In 1926, the Exhibit Supply Company unveiled its Iron Claw machine. That one was powered by an electric motor, but still had a dial knob on the front. It allowed the player, buyer, mark to control, loosely, where the claw of the crane inside would drop and grab something, after receiving five cents. Since it was a grabby claw, the machine could tempt children with toys instead of sweets. Since selling toys for five cents was less profitable than not giving any toys away, these machines could feature items carefully placed out of reach or glued to the bottom. Scamming children is a long-standing coin-op tradition. Today, they use variable strength of the claw grip. So, modern crane games and claw machines got their start from the humble working models of cranes, loading claws, and also power shovels eventually. We're not done with perverse selling techniques for today, but for now, let's change the subject. The 30s were a good and productive decade for machines. Electrical and electronic components continued to grow more reliable and more affordable. Recorded voice could be used to attract people in addition to bells and mechanical jingles. Reportedly, coin-operated laundromats appeared in America, and I'm just mentioning them because they will be briefly relevant in a later episode. Also, the war between different formats of media for music had ended, with the vinyl records winning, so manufacturers of jukeboxes could breathe a sigh of relief and start getting creative. Before anyone could do anything, pinball burst onto the scene. Okay, few called it pinball in the early 30s, because at first it was indistinguishable from Redgrave's Parlor Bagatelle I mentioned in episode 1.3, that game about using a spring-loaded plunger to shoot a ball up an incline. But a few companies were innovating, and the old game now had new legs. Literally, they added legs to those countertop units so that they could stand on their own. Gottlieb D. and Company's 1931 Baffle Ball had balls and targets of different colors, and if you hit a target hole with the corresponding ball, you got bonus points. Mind, there wasn't any scorekeeping system whatsoever, so better bring pen and paper if you want to play. Around the same time, Bally Manufacturing Company added a funny thing to its Ballyhoo table. A free play hole. If you were lucky enough or skillful enough to get a ball into it, you could play another round without paying. This concept was taken further by a William H. Bella, who in 34 patented a pinball table mechanism involving electrical switches and electromagnets that could keep the score automatically, and even automatically reward the player with free plays if they completed objectives on the table. The objectives were something along the lines of get a ball into that target hole, and then another ball to a different matching hole. If you did that, the scoring dial increased by one point, and you got a free play. This is notable, because it's starting a transition from playing for a payout or a prize to playing for the fun of it. The game could be its own reward. Literally. Incidentally, this patent was used by J.H. Keeney and Company in a table it started producing in 35 called Quicksilver. The designer of the table was Harry E. Williams, 
who would later found his own company and become a legend in the pinball world. However, all was not fun and games in the world of steel balls, because in the same 30s people were perfecting pinball with payouts. Like many machines, pinball tables heavily relied on gravity to do its job and on the playing field staying still, inclined at a set angle. But if a player hit or tilted or even lifted the bottom of the table while a ball was rolling, they could cheat and direct the ball to the target they wanted. That was not good for the owner of the table, and the only real way to stop it was to have someone watch the players all the time. And then, tilt alarms happened. A mysterious KNF speciality company released only one table ever in 1933, according to online databases, but with that table it was marketing a tilt detector that could be installed onto any pinball machine. The advert went, Equip your machine with tilters. No cheating, less payouts, more profits. Fits any machine on the market. You cannot afford to be without KNF tilters. Start making more money today. Tilter equipped machines do not need to be watched. End quote. And that's how anti cheating systems appeared in games. Not for the purity of the game, but to reduce payouts. Now, I don't know how that tilter worked. But a popular designer at the time, nicknamed Stool Pigeon and attributed to the same Harry Williams, consisted of a ball sitting on a narrow stand over a cup. If the machine was disturbed, the ball fell off, which either tripped an alarm or simply was visible through a glass window. Later, most manufacturers switched to another Williams' sensor, using a metal pendulum and a metal ring around it, just waiting for an excuse to touch one another. Although. So long as you didn't trip the alarm, whatever nudges you gave to the machine were perfectly legal. Another novelty of the 30s, or specifically 1932, was the double shuffle table from Ad Lee Company, which had its own special tilt detection system and flippers. A modern pinball table is unimaginable without at least a couple of those tiny bats for keeping and controlling the ball in play, but they weren't common in the very beginning. Double Shuffle went all-in on flippers. It had eight of them. And no plunger to launch the ball. The company made a point of it, arguing that the machine was a game of pure skill and not chance. Yeah, about that. Um, The rewarding, paying nature of the early pinball came back to bite it on the coin slot when in the 40s pinball got banned in America, with arrests, police raids and everything. I can kinda see the reasoning. Some of the companies making the tables were also making slot machines used by organized crime. Organized crime loved coin-op everything for dealing strictly in cash and leaving no witnesses. Other pinball companies needed the same experts and suppliers as slot machine producers, so they favored industrial cities, like, say, mob-ridden Chicago. That didn't help their image. Then there was the payouts business. Combined with the fact that to an outsider a game of pinball felt like a game of pure chance, flippers were still rare and the secret was all in the plunger action. It was all very suspicious. After the initial burst of raids and publicity for the authorities, they let pinball be. Now, technically it would be banned for decades, but pinball laws weren't enforced in many areas, such as Chicago, which turned into the coin-op capital of the United States. One other pinball innovation from those days that I should mention is the knocker. 
It's a small and simple electrical device that loudly hits the inside of the case when you earn a free play. It's both a sound effect and a source of tactile feedback if you've got your hands on the machine. Which you should, I mean, it's pinball. Although, if you wanted loud noises in the 30s, you'd probably want the products of J.P. Seberg. It was a family-owned jukebox manufacturer, a leading one at that. But in addition to jukeboxes, Seberg had side projects, and none shined as brightly as their mid-30s Rayolite. Well, actually, the Rayolite system was developed by Rayolite Rifle Range Company, and patented by Charles W. Griffith as marksmanship practicing means in 35, but it was Seberg that would manufacture and market the units for decades. The origins of the system stemmed from the same wild late 19th century, when it was noticed that the electric properties of some materials changed depending on how well lit they were. This resulted in the development of the photoelectric cell, a vacuum tube that could be used to detect light. It detected light in early television experiments, and in the 30s, it was time to detect light in games. The concept is very simple. The target has a tube with a lens, directing light coming from a narrow angle towards a photoelectric cell. The gun is a replica of a real gun, but when you pull the trigger, out of the barrel comes not a bullet, but a narrow beam of light. It's no laser, but good enough. Each shot turns the light on only for a moment, and it's on purpose. As Griffith explains in the patent, If the light stayed on for anything more than a substantially instantaneous flash period, then the operator would be able to swing the gun around after the trigger was pulled and use the beam to help himself to guide the gun to cause the indication, much as a hose might be used. End quote. Oh, Charles, get with the times. In 39, J.H. Keeney and Company released anti-aircraft machine gun cabinet, with a girl in a swimsuit firing the gun on the advert. Now, that one used a different hit registration system and targets appearing on the screen. Rayolite was neither the only, the first, nor the last in the field, but it was one of the first gun games with electronic scoring systems, and it existed in a wide range of forms. The original 1935 Rayolite rifle range challenged the player to shoot as many mechanical ducks as they could using a limited number of shots. The target ducks did not stay in place, but moved across the cabinet on a rail. That was popular, so in 39 they advanced to more dangerous game. Man. The Chicken Sam machine let you shoot a guy for stealing a chicken. If you hit him, he turned around and ran in the other direction. Seberg also produced conversion kits for Chicken Sam, allowing operators to replace the target and the background and turn it into, say, a mafia game about shooting a crazy bartender, a police game about shooting an escaping prisoner, or a racist game about shooting a Chicken Sambo. Again, Seberg was neither the first nor the last company to offer a caricature black guy as a practice target. I suppose they were popular in those American states that lost the Civil War, or maybe the city of Tulsa, or in Britain. There, in 1950, Chad Valley Company, a really old publisher, released a toy called Four Little N-Word Boys, which let the players shoot cork projectiles out of a pop gun at four black kid figures doing nothing. 
There was also a Five Boys version. Anyway, back to Seabug. There was another new game in 39, Shoot the Shoot, in which targets were German paratroopers descending from the sky. A Blitzkrieg-themed bit of fun. After the Japanese Navy hit Pearl Harbor and the USA got into the fight for real, production of new arcade machines all but ceased to save materials. One of the given reasons for the pinball bands was that wood and steel could be used in the war. Well, for the makers of the gun games, the situation was less dramatic. In fact, it was almost the opposite. They released new conversion kits to boost the morale at home. Seabook turned Chicken Sam into Kill the Jap with the figure of a buck-toothed yellow-skinned Japanese soldier. If you've ever seen Bugs Bunny Nips the Nips cartoon from the same period, you can imagine what the target looked like. There was also Hit the Siamese Rats, in which the target was two-faced. Its left side showed Hitler, and the right side was the Japanese Prime Minister Tojo. So it wasn't just Nintendo that was pushing propaganda at the time, many were in it. That's how the entertainment industry survives in wartime. After the war, Seaburg toned it down a notch, I think, introducing Shoot the Bear in 1947, in which you shot a bear. But when you hit it, it would turn to face the audience, get up on its hind legs, growl, and oh, and its eyes would glow red. And those games were getting responsive. It appears the whole Rayolite line was ended in the early 50s with Coon Hunt, a game about shooting raccoons. As you may know, near the very end of World War II, the United States dropped two nuclear bombs on Japan, killing in those two bombings more people than the entire Franco-Prussian War. Whether it was really necessary is still debated to this day, but back then on the ground the bombs caused death and destruction at a scale not seen before, topping even the 1917 Halifax explosion. Naturally, in America, they made a game about it, while the bodies were still burning. Okay, I exaggerate a bit. In 1946. It was Atomic Bomber, by International Mutoscope Real Company. You would come up to the flashy machine, put in five cents, and pretty much lie on top of it, looking down the viewing hood as if into a bomb site. Your hands would be on the bomb release button and on the aiming dial, which moved your targeting reticle left or right. Through the sight, you would observe the aerial view of the enemy country scrolling past. Boats on a river, factories, villages. You'd line up the reticle with the target markers, and hit release over and over again, nuking the country, the landscape lighting up red with every hit. There is a video of Atomic Bomber in action on the Game Informer YouTube channel. Uh, just ignore the video editors splicing archive footage of, I think, Soviet bombers into it for some reason. It's curious, though. To come up with a game, develop it, and put it into production within a year, they must have known what they were doing over at International Mutoscope. I need to look into that company. For starters, what is a mutoscope? It was a late 19th and early 20th century cheap competitor to kinetoscope. It also showed moving pictures if you looked down the viewing hood, but the principle of operation was different. A mutoscope was basically a coin-operated flipbook, only with a big drum holding hundreds of frames with individual pages. So a big drum and a viewing hood. That explains the sight and the scrolling landscape in Atomic Bomber. Once the movie theaters and then the TV got going, the mutoscope business went into a decline. 
Luckily, International Mutoscope was ready for anything. The company made fortune-telling machines, vending machines, photo booths, a few pinball tables, and sports-themed strength tests. Their dropkick challenged you to kick a football as hard as you could, and then told you how far it would have flown if it hadn't been attached to a lever. But many companies made sports-themed games, even pinball machines, because, if you think about it, yeah, a flipper does look like a tiny baseball bat. A big international mutoscope hit was the 1940 Glamour Girl postcard vendor. Uh, wait, no. Sorry, no, wrong machine. The 1940 Voiceograph, a fully automatic voice recording booth. You went in, dropped a quarter into the machine, picked up the microphone shaped like a phone receiver, and spoke or sang your message into it. The system would signal first when you had been talking for a minute, and then when you had 10 seconds left. After you were done, the machine would spit out a fresh and compact vinyl record, optionally with an envelope if you paid extra. An advert proclaimed the whole process was like talking on the phone, but a thousand times more thrilling. End quote. Sure, whatever you say. Let's go back to those games. In 1941, International Mutoscope released Ace Bomber, which played nothing like Atomic Bomber. It was in fact an air defense game. A toy plane was moving in a circle over a playing field, a map of Europe separated into four sections. Each section had an anti-air battery on it. The player controlled fire with a fire button on a handle which could be turned to select a battery. Going by a video of the game in action on YouTube, the whole trick to getting a lot of points was to hold down the fire button and twist the handle to the rhythm of the plane's movement. Ace Bomber was flashy, loud, and played an air raid siren sound. But what about that scrolling? Well, International Mutoscope had used a painted drum in 1940 in Drive Mobile, one of the earliest driving games. It was about driving across America coast to coast, following a straight single lane road. You can see how that would be easy to paint on a drum. The player rotated a life-size steering wheel to make their model car shift left or right, trying to stay on the road and not, say, get into the oncoming lane where there were other cars painted on. The obvious question here is why it was a challenge to keep a car on a straight road. It looks like the player's vehicle hadn't had its wheels checked for several decades, so it was veering off to one side or to the other all the time. Thankfully, the whole trip only took a few minutes, and not eight hours, as a similar ordeal would take in Desert Bus, a notorious game from Penn & Teller's Smoke & Mirrors disc, unreleased in 1995. And so, by the graces of International Mutoscope, we're introduced to scrolling playing fields, though there had been a few earlier drum-based games too. They're a bit limited, linear, but they are perfect for creating the feeling of a journey, a long road, a challenging obstacle course. The video game industry is going to use scrolling extensively, once it figures out how to imitate the effect. In the same early 40s, three Americans decided to make some quick cash by putting gambling machines in front of American military personnel in the Pacific. Stuck on islands in the middle of nowhere, all those servicemen were easy prey. After the war, the company would become known as Service Games. Unfortunately for it, soon after the war, the US government decided that gambling was bad again, 
and service games had to run for the hills. The hills were pretty far, in Japan. Post-World War II Japan was a good place to do business for the more open-minded American entrepreneurs. The military occupation had blown the doors of the Japanese market wide open for all kinds of goods from across the Pacific. In the 50s, Japan was being flooded by cheap mass-produced equipment from America, American food, American films, and American comic books that would influence Japanese comics and animation. Traditional businesses like Nintendo started rethinking their operations. Some very traditional manufacturers ended up almost out of jobs, for example, the Smiths. They had already suffered massive losses in contracts in the late 19th century when Japan switched from swords to guns, and now the Smiths were losing to factory-made farming tools and electric pencil sharpeners. No one in Japan wanted a cheap yet terrible Higanakami knife anymore, save for tourists. It was in that environment that Service Games of Japan was founded. The company started making itself comfortable, set up branches across the Southeast Asia, but in the late 50s, it turned out the Japanese authorities didn't like gambling that much either. So, Service Games had to split again, and quite literally. A couple of independent companies were formed that just happened to work together after buying up all the assets of the dissolved Service Games. Happens every day, mate. Fortunately, at that time, the company ran into someone they had never had before, a legitimate businessman, David Rosen of Rosen Enterprises. A US Air Force deployment had brought him to Japan during the Korean War, and then he came back and set up a photo booth company there in 54. The business proved successful, because Japan was still not doing too well after World War II. Everyone was poor and needed an ID with a photo at all times. Rosen's machines were cheaper and faster than human photographers, who had to find new jobs. Or buy a license to run a booth. From Rosen. By the end of the 50s, he expanded into importing electromechanical arcade machines from America. It worked out. In Japan, the cabinets were a novelty and people finally had spare cash, while America was sick of them and they barely turned a profit even at 10 cents per game there. Pinball was the only innovating field. Everything else was simply obsolete. In 64-65, all the remnants of Service Games and Rosen Enterprises merged into an entity dubbed after the abbreviated name of Service Games, Sega Enterprises. Rosen was put in charge, and he had a great idea. Now, I don't know the exact quote, but I have an inkling he said something along the lines of Guys, why don't you try to do something legal for a change? And so they did. Sega started developing their own machines you could play for fun. The first one was the 1966 Periscope. Supposedly. There is also a solid claim that Masaya Nakamura of Namco developed an earlier three-player version of Periscope. Namco originally was an amusement ride company Nakamura had founded in the 50s, but it entered the arcade business in the 60s with some help from Disney. Not to be confused with the Japanese vending machine company Taito, founded in the 50s to sell vodka, which also entered the arcade business in the late 60s. Taito was founded by Michael Kogan, a Ukrainian Jew from Odessa. Early Japanese arcades were a true international endeavor, and Taito, Namco, Rosen Enterprises, and now Sega, were fierce competitors. Anyway, so what was Periscope, whoever invented it? It was a cabinet with a huge glass case with a floor fashioned like the sea surface. 
The player, cast in the role of a submarine captain, was observing the waters through the periscope, which could be turned left and right to scan the horizon, like a real periscope, and a bit like a relative of that viewing hood from earlier. Suddenly, a ship would appear in the distance and start moving left to right, even changing the direction sometimes, like that chicken stealing Sam. The player would aim with a periscope and fire a torpedo at the ship. Now, in earlier machines, like Keeney and Company's submarine from 1941, you did fire a stream of real steel balls at a target from a gun. In Periscope, to simulate a large distance between your sub and the target, they used chains of light bulbs on the case floor. First, the nearest bulb would light up, then the next one and the first one would go out, and so on. The torpedo slowly crept towards the moving target, and if the aim was right, the ship disappeared in a thundering boom. Apparently Periscope had amazing sound effects I can't find anywhere online, but that explosion was generated by something like an electric guitar amp picking up sound from a vibrating spring and with the capacitor stretching the noise out to a couple of seconds. That's in addition to other sound effects, simple electronic beeps. So, as you've gathered from the description, the core ideas of Periscope were not that original, it was just another target shooting game. But Periscope absolutely nailed the presentation. It turned heads at trade shows, it was exported, it put Sega on the map as opposed to a police watchlist. Periscope was even good enough to help set a new price point for playing arcade machines. 25 cents in the United States. Now this new idea that you don't have to physically hit the target to hit the target would go a long way in electromechanical arcades. In its 1970 game Combat, Sega didn't even bother to show the projectile. You aimed your tank's cannon, pressed fire, there was a loud whistle, and then a flash of explosion in the distance. Incidentally, Combat also used a periscope viewpoint, but it felt a bit like you were looking at the action hovering above and behind your tank. What a strange perspective. It was also used in the Indy 500 cabinet, released in 69 by a Japanese company Casco, later brought west as Speedway. Like Drivemobile, it was a driving game, but all the cars on the track were neither painted on nor physical models. They were projections, and opponents' cars could appear on the left and the right sides of the track, forcing the player to steer their car to avoid collisions, not just to stay on the road. With its great looks and realistic sound effects, Speedway was a huge hit selling an unbelievable number of units for an electromechanical cabinet. More than 10,000. With Japan's help, this time came to be a real revival of coin-ops in America. Oh, and naturally all those 10,000 cabinets wanted a quarter coin per play. In Sega's 1969 missile, the player controlled a surface-to-air missile launcher shooting down incoming enemy planes. The player could turn the launcher left and right using two buttons, and then fire a missile using a button on top of a joystick, like in an airplane and that joystick could also be tilted left and right to steer the missile in flight. Was this inspired by Vietnam War footage? It must have been, that's when surface-to-air missiles made the news. Anyway, both the enemy planes and the missiles were again projections, though coming from different projectors. The images combined in the dark depth of the cabinet. There was a neat effect with it too. When the missile was loaded on the plastic model of the launcher, it was glowing, you could clearly see the missile there, and when you fired it, there was a flash behind the missile, and then it all went dark, and the missile's projection appeared farther away, creating an illusion of a lightning-fast start. You can find a video of this on YouTube.
A similar system with projectors and mirrors was used by a good partner of Sega, American arcade manufacturer Midway, in 1970 in the SAMI surface-to-air missile interceptor cabinet, as it was by Taito in 1971 Sky Fighter II. So in the late 60s, those electromechanical games were getting less mechanical. Projected missiles, projected targets. It does make sense because mechanical elements can be limiting or simply fragile. Faking things with electronics opened new possibilities. So why not project the background and the score as well? Or maybe use one of those TV screens? That could work, right? In fact, the first design of a game where something was drawn on an electronic screen was the cathode ray tube amusement device patented by two physicists way back in 1947. It never got anywhere back then, though. Maybe it just wasn't the time. For now, we're going to leave arcade designers and manufacturers to crack that puzzle, since we've got a few other mechanical topics to cover today. The panorama of the early 20th century arcades I've presented is by no means complete. As usual, there were many more people and games. A single company could only build and maintain so many cabinets, so there was always room for competition with similar products. That is, if they could work out a deal with the local mob. Because any machine where untraceable money could appear out of nowhere was a golden opportunity for money laundering. These decades reveal not just a change of technology that went into arcade machines, but changes in attitudes to them. The introduction of this silly idea that a challenging game may reward you with more game. It turns out people like that. People like their machines bright and flashy. They like good sound effects and maybe even music. People would cheat against the machines, but themselves did not like being cheated. They liked new games, topical games, shooting, driving, a variety of activities, but mostly shooting. Something that annoyed me in researching this period was that it was difficult to find out who specifically designed or developed this or that game. They're all credited to the companies that produced them, and the name of the actual creators might not even be mentioned anywhere except for the blueprints and accounting records, I suppose. Unless you were lucky to patent something or split from a company and found your own, like Williams, you would most likely remain a nameless non-figure. This treatment would continue into the video game era with serious consequences, but we'll get there when we get there. One of the reasons Sega and others were able to produce many new things in the 60s were the continued improvements in plastics both the materials and the methods of manufacturing. To understand just how big plastics were getting at the time, let's look at statistics. I'll avoid huge numbers that always cloud perception and simply divide available data on world plastics production per year by world population that year. They're very close numbers. In 1950, you'd get nearly 800 grams of plastic per person per year. Less than a kilo, but more than a pound. Items out of plastic were uncommon, at least in consumer goods. Until the end of World War II, most plastics were made for military use, and after the war all those factories had to keep selling their products to someone, while people wanted wood and metal, not cheap ugly plastic. But the 50s brought the rise of fast food, McDonald's, and plastic straws became the hottest new thing. There were also toys and novelty items, such as Eddie Goldfarb's yakety-yak talking teeth, the wind-up clattering dentures. 
1960, the world would make just over 2.6 kilos of plastic per person per year. The number now included the big hit of 1959, the Barbie doll from Mattel. By 1970, you'd get nearly 9 kilos and a half of plastic per person per year. It's beginning to sound like a lot. What did they start making in the 60s? Cassette tapes, among other things. I've mentioned Valdemar Paulsen and his 19th century magnetic voice recorder that used a wire, but other magnetized medium could be used too. In the 1930s, Fritz Pfleumer presented a paper-based magnetic tape and a tape recorder to the public, and his magnetophone would enjoy a lot of use in professional circles, up to and including Adolf Hitler. After the war, the Allies got their hands on the latest German hardware and found that tapes had been switched to a plastic base. In the late 40s, tape was the medium that helped French composer Pierre Schaeffer develop sample-based music, but it was still hard to come by. For a long time, TV and radio companies recorded broadcasts over old recordings to save tape while pretending to have an archive. Fifty years later, the British Broadcasting Corporation would be searching the internet for amateur recordings of its own vintage programming to put it on air, claiming it had found a dusty box with reels in the cellar. In the 60s, tapes in early cassette models, Stereo 8, finally got to the mass market and even into car stereos. Tapes will play brief but memorable roles in the history of computer games too, but in later episodes. Naturally, they also continued to make toys during the decade. It was the 60s when a Dutch toy block brand, Lego, switched primarily to plastics and came to America. And there were other toys, a few of which were designed for various American companies by one firm called Marvin Glass & Associates, reportedly quite a creative bunch. Their first major hit was Mr. Machine in 1960, it was a wind-up robot man that could roll forward and make noises. The big feature was that you could disassemble Mr. Machine and put him back together again. And it would even work. It... it should work. Uh, where does this part go? MGA would design other moving toys too, such as a battery-powered walking dog named Gaylord. In 63, another MGA hit appeared on the market. Mousetrap, a hybrid of our old friend Race Game, and a Rube Goldberg machine, a comically elaborate device for performing very simple tasks. In this case, it was a massive mouse trap which first had to be built and then used at the right moment, and it, sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Though cartoonist Rube Goldberg, who gave his name to this concept, was still alive at the time, MGA did not pay him anything. In 65, MGA's operation saw the light of day. This electrical game of finger dexterity about pulling things out of a naked man is still sold in shops. The concept was invented and sold to MGA by a student, John Spinello, who, much like Lizzie Meiji, got $500 and never heard from the publisher ever again. Until 2017, that is, when John had to crowdfund money for a real operation. After the press learned and wrote about it, Hasbro, who seems to own everything now, even bought out John's first prototype of the game. 1967 brought the release of MGA's Light Bright. The toy, made up of a backlit grid of holes, black paper and a pile of sharp translucent plastic pegs in a few colors, let children and adult children create glowing pictures. Oddly enough, just a decade after the toy's release, 
The ability to draw presentable objects and characters in low-resolution limited-color computer graphics became a valuable skill. People were getting ready for pixel art before most of them saw pixels. But the real reason I wanted to mention Marvin Glass & Associates is their 1964 product. The toy that introduced American and European kids to the joys of decapitating their opponent. Yes, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, a purely mechanical toy existing between boxing and puppet theatre. Two robots controlled by long rods go in, only one leaves with its head on its shoulders. Well, okay, it doesn't leave, they can't go that far, it's a fairly simple device. But I hear they're planning a movie based on it. If you add these and other mechanical and electromechanical toys to the offerings of the arcades, you might even begin to wonder why young people all over the world started rioting in 1968. Maybe 9 kilos of colored plastic per year are not enough to make a person happy. Maybe the production should be ramped up? Obviously, alongside all the famous toys, there were boring regular toys, which had to be sold as well somehow. According to an article on the Japan Times website, one of the businessmen facing this problem in the 60s was Ryuzo Shigeta in Tokyo, who with his brother Tetsuo was running a toy shop locally and exporting cheap toys to America. The tables of international trade had turned, though a lot of the goods were actually made in Hong Kong. Their overseas partner sent the brothers an American vending machine. They took one look at it and proclaimed it insanitary. Apparently the unit was intended to sell both toys and candy all mixed together in the same big case. So as you may imagine, all the toys were getting a sugar coating, while the sweets were absorbing the oils from toys made out of plastic scraps. And when you put in a coin, the machine spat out a loosely regulated portion of whatever happened to be at the bottom. Although it was awful. Ryuzo Shigeta solved most of the problems with the machine by focusing on toys and putting each of them into a uniform, transparent plastic capsule. Now, all vended items were the same shape and size. But that was not the end of it. According to GachaponToys.com, he had some cute plastic skull toys kids liked a lot, and way more toys they liked less. So he mixed them in the machine, with the skulls being the top prize, but making up only 10% of the capsules in the unit. On February the 17th, 1965, the machine was unveiled, and children fell for it, sticking in coins to get the skulls and buying the other toys in the case on the way there. For about a decade, machines of this type, now called Gachapon or Gashapon, were selling dirt cheap toys for 10 or 20 yen. However, in 77, a big Japanese toy company, Bandai, founded in 1950, trademarked Gashapon and entered the business with its own machines and toys, priced at 100 yen. From then on, Gashapon toys would grow in quality, complexity and turnover. Meanwhile, in a parallel world, in 62, Argentinian company Felfort introduced a new product, Jack, un chocolatin con sorpresa. It was a chocolate bar shaped like a flat box or a desk drawer, and in that box there was a surprise, a small toy. You didn't know which of the many toys in the series until you opened the wrapper. Was it popular? You bet. It was un boom immediato. Obviously, the more famous product of this type is the Kinder Surprise Egg by the Italian company Ferrero, which it started selling in 74. 
I'm telling you about these toys because the idea of gachapon has spread to computer games, though far more recently. Many so-called free-to-play games for smartphones, home consoles and personal computers offer an opportunity to open a virtual box of something for a price. However, the 10% chance of getting the top prize Ryuzo Shigeta started with would be considered astronomically generous today. Also, Bandai and MGA and Mattel are all going to dip their plastic toes into the video game industry later in the story. Now, if we step back from all this mad, magnificent multitude of mechanical money-making machines as they're slowly electrifying in the run-up to the 70s and look around... Say, have you been noticing this undercurrent to the story of games? It's always been there lurking in the background. All those attempts to use games for something other than entertainment or profit. Yes, education. Kriegspiel, Tangram, the Landlord's Game, the Moralizing Race Games. Well, as it turns out, the 20th century was a pretty special time for mechanized education as well. Up until this episode, we've dealt with simulations based on maths, logical rules, statistics, die rolls. But the physical world exists too. And if you want to train people in interacting with it directly rather than giving orders to others, you need a different kind of models. You need mechanical simulators. I mean, sure, you could describe a horse mathematically, but it won't teach anyone how to ride one. Mechanical simulators are way older than Rayolite and other toy guns and the steering wheels and the joysticks of the arcade machines. Mechanical simulators are as ancient as chess, if not older, so I could have started the podcast with them. But I didn't, so we'll learn about them now. Luckily for all of us, Emeritus Professor Harry Owen of Flinders University has written a book titled Simulation in Healthcare Education, an Extensive History. It's got to be fascinating, but unluckily for us, it's priced like a university textbook, meaning the only sane ways to read it are to find it in a library or get it as a gift from the author. Seriously, $100 for a digital copy? Ew. However, reversing our luck yet again, Harry Owen maintains a website, historyofsimulation.com, where he's put up a lot of amusing tidbits from his research and not only what went into the book. By the way, dear Amazon, if you're listening, this Harry Owen is not the poet Harry Owen, and presenting their works on the same author page creates a highly confusing bibliography. Anyhow, as the title of Simulation in Healthcare Education may have clued you in, It's about medical simulators, the history of which Owen traces all the way from around 400 CE. If you think about it, yes, you would definitely want your doctor to practice on something or someone else before cutting you or sticking something in you. And the sooner they start practicing, the better. Apparently, this tradition of mechanical sims in medicine went into a decline in the late 20th century, which is a bit alarming. I mean, you can't exactly replace touching things with a computer quiz. Parallel to medicine, there has always existed the opposite, warfare. And it involved a lot of mechanically simulated activities, with wooden swords, practice mannequins. Around the 12th century, mounted knights were becoming the coolest military branch in Europe, and would-be knights had no shortage of mechanical simulators surrounding them since childhood. It would start with something simple, 
Boys as young as seven running around with toy lances, getting used to holding them properly and to the balance of the weapon. Eventually, they would advance to hitting a target with that lance, and the target could be anything, maybe even a stray servant. No, the most elaborate practice target was what we still know today as a quintain or a pavo, a board or a shield extended on a long horizontal arm, mounted on a post. If you hit the target, the arm swung around the post, offering a clear hit indication. In the picture Owen cites from an 1801 book, the reader could see that the other end of an arm had a rope attached to it. Whether the rope was used to reset the target or to pull it out of the way suddenly, I have no idea. But that's only basic training. As we all know, the most distinct feature is, of course, a horse. So eventually the trainee would have to do all of the lance exercises while riding a wooden horse on wheels. The simulated mount would be propelled forward by people pushing it or pulling it with ropes. Only having mastered that piece of equipment would the knight in training advance to attacking from a real animal. And finally, after practicing with a horse while wearing armor that had to have entered the training program at some point, the almost knight would have a chance in a jousting tournament. There is a medieval episode in the Worst Jobs in History series, where, among other things, they show the work that went into the lances for those competitions. The jousting lances were neither simple sticks nor battle lances, but painstakingly created wooden imitations with a safety feature. They shattered on impact with plate armor, usually. After all the years of training with all these tools, a knight would at last be ready to go out on campaign with his lord and die of dysentery. It may seem like fun and games, but various mechanical horse-riding simulators were remaining in active use for as long as cavalry stayed a part of various armed forces, so well into the 20th century. Obviously, there are other things people can ride. A bucking barrel, or its more high-tech version, the mechanical bull, simulate the challenge of riding a live bull justifiably displeased with the state of affairs. The barrel is a very simple device made up of, well, a saddled-up barrel suspended by ropes, which people pull with a different set of ropes, creating violent thrashing motions. A good enough way to practice before the real thing. Visually, there isn't much of a bull in the barrel, but like mathematical models, mechanical ones also focus only on the relevant parts of the subject. In case of the bucking barrel, it's the motion and the interface between the bull and the rider, that is, the saddle. People create mechanical models of specific body parts fairly often. In the years of the Second World War, many men joined various armed forces, leaving behind their wives, homes, factories and farms. But someone still had to work to produce food and other stuff. Who else but women? As it turned out, women were just as good as men at many supposedly manly jobs, though initially newcomers needed a little training. In Britain, when city girls were sent over to tend to farm animals, they had to be taught how to handle farm animals, on four legs anyway. One of the devices invented to help them with it was a milking simulator. The simulator was a wooden frame on tall legs with an artificial cow udder hanging underneath. Owen found a painting of the training process by Evelyn Dunbar, an official war artist, and it looks like the udders were fashioned out of rubberized fabric with rubber cups for girls to tug on, milking water out of the device into a bucket. The thing wasn't as intimidating as a real cow up close, it didn't moo, but it was better than injuring animals. You know, maybe those people who annoyed Buddha by plowing with toy plows 
had the right idea. Anyway, let's leave animals to graze in peace and go back to medical simulations. As many of you must have been thinking, people also make working mechanical models of human body parts. And this is where we need to sit down and talk about where babies come from. The European science discovered where babies came from around the 18th century. Wait, that's not the best way to put it. Um, around the early 18th century, male European physicians finally had the tools and enough information about human anatomy to understand the process of childbirth and systematically assist it in a scientific manner. Until the 1700s, giving birth was something women were supposed to do among themselves, kind of like cats. But the time has finally come for men to offer their expert advice. As usual, it all started a bit earlier. In the 16th century, Caterina de' Medici ruled France for a while, getting it through a period of civil wars and religious turmoil. As a Roman Catholic, Catherine disliked Protestants. Once, she banned them from practicing medicine. So in 1569, a certain doctor, William Chamberlain, Chamberlain, had to flee to England with his family, including his son, Peter. Then his wife gave birth to another boy they called Peter. A spare. It's a good thing they fled. Catherine was having a very on-and-off relationship with the Protestants. At some point she did try to make up with them, but the Catholic Church was having none of that. So eventually Catherine encouraged the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, in which thousands of Protestants were murdered. By the way, if you want to learn playfully about the run-up to this, the mad early 16th century with its religious reformation, the papacy burning books, high seas piracy, the colonization of the Americas, and the many wives of Henry VIII, there is a game for you and your five friends. It's a board game and it's called Here I Stand. One of the mechanics is the ability to hold rap battles, well, religious debates between the papacy and the Protestants, and if the Protestant player throws a really bad die roll, their debater gets burned at the stake. The game has a sequel too, Virgin Queen. Okay, back to our Chamberlain family. Peter and Peter took up the medical profession just like their dad, specializing in man midwifery, or in the modern language, obstetrics. The brothers had a secret weapon. It was obstetric forceps. The forceps used to extract the baby who just wouldn't come out normally. And I mean it when I say secret, they never told anyone how their method worked, and every time they used the forceps was a performance. The tool was brought in in an oversized gilded case, everyone was ejected from the room, save for the poor woman in labor who had to wear a blindfold, and then the Peters carried out the procedure, hiding all the action under a blanket and making silly noises. The trick worked, apparently, since the forceps remained a family secret. Yes, a life-saving treatment method was kept exclusive to two guys in England. What were other doctors using? Hooks. The younger Peter eldest son, named Peter, continued the family's creative naming scheme and the family business, and had a lot of experience receiving birth, as he, between his two marriages, fathered four daughters and fourteen sons. His eldest son, Peter, sorry, sorry, Hugh, his eldest son, Hugh, also became an obstetrician, but the business must have been going poorly, because in 1670, Hugh traveled to Paris to sell the family secret to the French government. Unfortunately for him, the man whose job was to evaluate the invention 
was a renowned obstetrician, François Marisot. Marisot went something like, Really, Mr. Chamberlain, you've brought a secret device for delivering babies in difficult situations. Well, do I have a challenge for you. I've got a 38-year-old rachitic woman with dwarfism who's been in labor for eight days. Can your secret get the baby out? Hugh gave it a three-hour-long shot, but failed, killing the patient, and left Franz keeping his secret. On the way out, he picked up a copy of Marisol's new book on obstetrics and translated it into English, which earned him fame and the title of the Physician in Ordinary to King Charles II, you know, the one that came after his dead one by stalemating himself. Later, Hugh would support Charles's successor, James II, a Catholic, but Catholics were rapidly going out of style in England, so Hugh had to flee to Holland. History does have a sense of humor. Apparently, Hugh did sell the family secret in the end, and in the late 17th century, obstetric forceps entered the body of commonly shared medical knowledge. A few decades passed with physicians perfecting the technique and the design. One of them was Gregoire, a French obstetrician who trained many notable students, including Scottish surgeon Alexander Munro, the guy who came up with the brilliant idea of teaching medicine in English. Another student of Gregoire was Thomas Secker, who became the Archbishop of Canterbury, apparently. Sadly, not someone in the Catholic clergy, because a trained obstetrician taking the vow of celibacy would have been too good of a joke. Another student of Gregoire was his son, Gregoire, who himself began teaching in 1733. The problem with teaching students how to use obstetric forceps is that it's nearly impossible to do with a lecture, or in a book, or even by showing them pictures. The procedure is carried out by feel alone. To help with that, Gregoire the Younger created one of Europe's first medical simulators. The core of the device was the pelvic bone of a woman. A real one, naturally. After all, bones were frequently used for illustration in medicine. Gregoire must have had a few spare skeletons in the closet. The pelvis, wrapped in leather, was mounted inside a weaved basket open on both ends. The basket was wrapped in heavy cloth. The way it all worked was this. Gregoire would stick his arms into the simulator from the top of the pelvis and use his hands to imitate the pressure of soft tissue and organs on the forceps. The trainee would insert the forceps into the smaller opening on the opposite end, squeeze in through Gregoire's hands, grab hold of and pull out a real baby. Yes, they used real babies in the simulator. Dead babies. I suppose they weren't in short supply in the 1700s. On the bright side, those dead babies each were saving hundreds, if not thousands of other babies from following their path in life. This method of training was effective, obstetricians came from other countries to observe it, wrote about it, designed their own simulators. It was another step towards modern medicine. Well, let's ourselves take a few steps towards the modern age and go back to the 20th century. In the early 1900s, people came up with yet another activity requiring skills impossible to teach in lectures or books. Flying an aeroplane. Early planes had enough trouble keeping themselves airborne. Carrying both the trainee and the instructor made them even more dangerous. The controls were still unusual, and of course, if you were flying alone and had a question, you couldn't just stop the plane, hop out and ask someone. 
as many skills as possible had to be taught in the relative safety of the ground level. Around 1909, French company Antoinette started producing planes of its own design. For some reason, possibly to avoid a patent infringement, the planes featured a downright bizarre control system, so Antoinette had to invent some way of getting people acquainted with it. They used a wine barrel. The trainee would climb into a half of a barrel split vertically that had a seat inside and was outfitted with control wheels like a real Antoinette plane. This in turn was sitting on a plate supported by the other half of the barrel. Since the sides of a barrel bulge out, the guy sitting in the simulator was in a very unstable position, and to keep him there, the top was held down by a set of ropes. Some of those ropes were attached to the controls inside, so say, turning one wheel, the pilot would make the barrel roll left or right. The goal was to align the simulator with a bar representing the horizon. But the other half of the barrel was there for a reason too. Thanks to it, instructors standing around the simulator could tilt the base plate, bringing the trainee out of alignment. The student would correct the attitude, the instructors would change it again. After a few days of this, a person who had never flown the plane before would instinctively know what the flight controls do and how to keep flying level without even thinking about it. Landings... you know, back in those days, landings were happy accidents. This particular style of simulator took off immediately. Uh, as a concept, I mean. From 1909-1910, similar machines, though not necessarily assembled after drinking a barrel of wine, appeared all over Europe and in the United States. Some seem improvised, like the Sanders trainer, literally a plane without an engine set on a flexible mount. It only worked when there was a strong wind blowing, because the controls were connected to the regular control surfaces of a plane. Other simulators had entire flying schools planned around them, like the Kiwi Bird by the Wright brothers, though it was a bit strange in that it did little to simulate pitching and rolling. But it could work without any wind, as it was powered by an electric motor. That's what you got for paying the Wright brothers $60 an hour. In the years of the First World War, other methods of training were employed too, such as penguins, flightless planes that could only taxi on the ground, and dedicated two-seater planes with two sets of controls. Glenn Curtis's Jenny was a star among them, and one of the very, very few American designs of the time other countries wanted. But in spite of those advances, stationary simulators remained in use. They were cheaper, safer, and did their job. In 1912, William Guy Ruggles invented the Ruggles Orientator, which stayed in use for years and even made it to the cover of the popular science magazine. Like the Antoinette sim, it allowed the instructor to put the chair with the trainee into many new and exciting positions, but it was not as limited. In fact, the student would have to wear a seatbelt because the simulator could and would be put upside down. And yet the device was compact and mobile enough to arrange them outdoors in large numbers and train pilots in bulk. After all, the casualty rate among the airmen of the Great War was hardly better than that of the soldiers in the trenches. In the interwar years, the greatest breakthrough in flight simulators was brought about by Edwin Albert Link Jr. The young man really got into flying in the early 20s, but eventually his parents stopped paying for the lessons and he had to find a replacement. So he designed and assembled his own flight simulator out of his parents' organs. I mean the musical instruments, the family had a business producing organs and mechanical pianos. 
Edwin had access to some finely engineered electrical and pneumatic components to make up the heart of his machine. Link's simulator, finished in 1929, was... adorable. The trainer was a small model plane of toy proportions, except a grown man could climb into it and play around with the controls, which made the model roll and pitch. Unsurprisingly, the first buyers of the system in the early 30s were amusement parks. Link kept trying to get someone serious to buy his creation, but it was not seeing a lot of success. Even though around 1933 he improved the device by adding an instrument panel showing simulated readouts and a hood blocking the pilot's view so he could use it for instrument flight practice. And then... the airmail scandal happened. Do you remember the talk early in the previous episode about railroad companies playing dirty for profits? The exact same thing happened to airmail in the United States. A bunch of officials and airline executives had a few drinks together, lobbied each other through every official and unofficial channel, and divided the airmail service between a few companies. Since it was a vital service, carrying mail was subsidized by the government, and so generously that it paid more than shipping actually cost. As a result, airlines not only dumped passenger service in favor of mail, but also fabricated junk mail, posted worthless bundles to carry across the country and collect subsidies for. Eventually, people started asking questions, and President Roosevelt put a stop to the practice. But that left the country with another question. Who is going to carry the airmail now? Then someone remembered that the US Army Air Corps supposedly had planes and could fly. Never mind that the Great Depression left the branch poorly funded. The planes were obsolete, the pilots flew four hours a day at best, only in good weather and never on weekends, and flying by instruments was practically unheard of, since the few instruments that were available were collecting dust in warehouses. No, it was decided that 60 pilots of the Air Corps would do it, in snow or rain or heat or gloom of night. On February the 16th, 1934, three of them died in familiarization flights. Still, the service started on the 19th. It ended on the 6th of June, 1934, in utter disgrace. Over the five months, there had been 66 accidents, and a total of 12 pilots wound up dead. The mail service returned to the airlines, but the subsidies were reduced. It was a wake-up call for the Air Corps. It turned out they had no idea how to fly in poor weather. Then some officers remembered about that Link guy with his toy plane, asked him for a demonstration, and then placed an order for six Link trainers. Over at the company, someone snapped a picture of that first batch, so that they could put it up online decades later. International orders soon followed. The first one, for 10 units, placed in 1935, came from the Imperial Japanese Navy. Huh. Surely they, they were just curious. And so was the next client, the German Luftwaffe. Oops. Oh, it must have been some consolation to the US airmen bailing out over Europe or the Pacific years later that at least their enemy was trained on simulators made in America. Link kept perfecting his machine all this time. He added the ability to rotate the plane and change its heading so that you could practice using a compass came up with an imitation of turbulence, and even made a recorder system so that your simulated flight path would be automatically drawn on a map. 
Other flight simulators started to appear, and by the end of the Second World War, pretend flying in boxes was no longer a novelty, but a standard practice worldwide. The following jet age, and especially jet airliners, encouraged future developments in the field. In the 60s, in Britain, there was a simulator by Redifon for the Vickers VC-10 airliner, which even went as far as to provide visuals to the pilot. It was done without computer graphics, though computers were used to model flight physics. Normally, if air traffic control does its job, the only time pilots really need to see anything is during the landing. So, for the simulator, they made a scaled-down model of an airport, complete with fields surrounding it and tiny trees and houses, and it was mounted vertically on a wall. And moving over the landscape was a TV camera turned sideways and rigged to mimic the motions of the modeled plane. As the simulated flight descended, the blinds on the front windows of the cockpit opened, and through them the students saw the camera feed projected onto a large screen. It must have been awesome. Though not without its problems. To make it look like it was daylight out there, the model had to be put under some pretty strong floodlights, and the tiny trees would often melt and fall off, uh, sideways as the crew was seeing it. Also, if you played with it for too long, the model could catch on fire. Fully digital simulation, with computer graphics, was already kicked around as a concept at the time. In April 67, at a spring joint computer conference in Atlantic City, crowds surrounded a demonstration unit from Systems Engineering Laboratories. There, on the round screen, you could see an instrument panel and some abstract line landscape surrounding an airfield. And if you got your hands on the joystick and throttle control in front of it, after standing in line, you could fly in this three-dimensional simulated computer space. Going back to those early days, though, large military planes had more than pilots. There were also navigators, bombardiers, and gunners. And they all got some kind of simulator. Now, navigating and bomb aiming could be trained using a projected or a scrolling map, or a planetarium for navigating by the stars, but gunnery? It required a creative approach. In the years of the First World War, aerial gunners had to get into special seats and try to aim their machine guns at a target as someone else was shaking their seat and swinging it up, down, left and right. That was entertaining, yet not good enough. That's when railroads came in. One system involved a trainee climbing into a cart on a narrow-gauge rail track, kind of like a minecart, except this one had the machine gun on a flexible mount. Then the cart was sent down a track that weaved and banked, and on the way to the end, the student had to hit a few stationary targets. So, like a roller coaster, but with guns? It's a bit disappointing they don't do it like this these days. Others thought that perhaps speeding a guy with a machine gun down the range was not the safest idea. They put targets on tracks to make them zoom across the firing range so that students practiced leading their aim. Yet others thought it was all getting a bit silly, and the same effect could be achieved by putting either the gunners or the targets, or both, in the back of moving trucks. Naturally, the trucks with targets had to drive unmanned. All of these approaches had one problem. They required large open ranges, real guns, and real ammunition. All of which could be used for other purposes. 
So both in Britain and the United States, people came up with ways to train gunners indoors and without firing anything. And on both sides of the Atlantic, it involved companies that produced projectors for movie theaters. The future gunner would take position inside a mock-up of a bomber turret and face the screen. Not a flat screen, but a concave one. In Britain, they used a hemisphere, while an American simulator designed by Fred Waller made do with a quarter of a sphere. The gunner positioned near the center of that sphere was surrounded by a projected sky, footage recorded on a real flight. Then, enemy planes would appear and perform attack runs. The gunner's task was to estimate speed and range, calculate lead and fire the guns, all in seconds, fractions of a second. Waller's trainer even came with a complicated system for registering hits immediately and notifying the trainee with sound effects over the earphones. That's in addition to simulated machine gun recoil. Immersive stuff. British gunnery trainers relied more on the gun projecting a hit marker that only the instructor could see. The instructor could then yell out corrections over the simulated engine noise and gunfire. Why use a spherical screen when most people were quite happy with flat ones? There is an answer in the summary written by Fred Waller after the war. The fundamental theory of the spherical screen process is that for the average individual the perception of distance, beyond about 20 feet, is not so much the result of binocular stereopsis as it is of peripheral vision, relative movement, size of object, and atmospheric perspective. End quote. So the three-dimensional screen was there to educate students in eyeballing the range to the target. It was important, clearly, since preparing the film for the wall of flexible gunnery trainer took a lot of effort. The image had to be created with five synchronized projectors. Before that, it had to be filmed by five cameras fitted into a turret on a flying bomber. Real fighters had to imitate attack passes against a bomber during the shoot. And then there was the hit detection system. First, the captured footage was analyzed, and for every single frame, they calculated where a gun should be aimed to score a hit, taking into account ballistics and the travel time of the bullet. Then, four special reels of scoring film were made, opaque save for areas matching the correct firing angle. There had to be four of them, one for each machine gun in a turret. During a session, the film was played by another four hidden projectors, synchronized with the main five. As the student was turning his guns, an electromechanical system moved four small openings in shields in front of the scoring film, and if a hole matched a transparent area in a frame, the light from that projector could pass through and meet our old friend from the beginning of the episode, a photoelectric cell. The student got audio feedback, while the instructor got flashing lights reporting which guns hit the target. So, the crude arcade machines of the same period were not the best and most immersive simulation hardware available. You get what you pay for, and for 5 cents per play, you got a cheap toy. Incidentally, a British air defense training simulator at Langham, the Langham Dome, was restored and converted into a museum a few years ago. It was a far simpler system, using only a couple of projectors and no automatic scoring, but it is a gunnery simulator from the 1940s. Before I wrap up for this episode, there is one more mechanical development in the field of education we need to be aware of, and that is the attempt to construct a mechanical apparatus for teaching maths. 
It was a special box created by the famous American psychologist Burris Frederick Skinner. Many may be thinking, oh, the Skinner's box. Same Skinner, different box. The proverbial Skinner's box was his operant conditioning chamber, a tiny cage with lights and levers where a small animal would respond to stimuli and be rewarded with food or punished by electric shocks. Skinner was a behaviorist, believing that measuring observable responses was the only way to make psychology scientific, move it away from cheap tricks like dream interpretation. Skinner's second box was the air crib he made for his baby daughter. It was a special container which maintained a comfortable environment for the baby, made it easier to take care of her, and also somehow engaged the baby, stimulating brain development. There was some interest in producing the device commercially, but as it turned out, Skinner's box for babies was literally unmarketable. But contrary to vicious rumors, Skinner's daughter survived the box. In 1953, he happened to attend a maths class at his daughter's school, and was shocked by what he was seeing. The better-prepared students were spending a lot of time doing nothing as the class moved at a slower pace, and in a test, no one knew immediately whether they answered correctly or not. I mean, they'd get their graded papers later, days later, but by then they had no memory of what the questions were. So B.F. Skinner went into a creative fatherly rage and invented his third box, the one we're interested in. It was his teaching machine. Oddly, the student was to be outside and not inside the container. And from that brand new perspective, they'd see a narrow opening in the lid, displaying a single math problem from a long paper roll of them. Near the problem window, there were several sliders which could be moved, and each corresponded to a single digit of the answer. After the student solved the problem and set the sliders, they could attempt to turn a black dial on the front of the box. If the slider's position matched the correct answer coded with holes in a hidden section of the roll, the dial could rotate and the paper advanced to the next problem. So you could work at your own pace and you immediately knew whether your answer was right. It was everything the inventor wanted. When Skinner presented the device at a conference in 54, it became a sensation. Strange that, since he wasn't the creator of the concept. Nope. Sidney Levitt Pressey had been advocating the use of machines in class since the 1920s, and he even built a few very similar to Skinner's just before the Great Depression hit. We don't know what could have been if his system had caught on in the 30s, but as it happened, no one really returned to the idea of using machines to teach until the late 50s. And then, as everyone was talking about and considering teaching machines, the big thing hit. On the 4th of October, 1957, the USSR launched Sputnik, the first artificial satellite of the Earth. It orbited the planet for a few months, broadcast some radio signals, then it ran out of power and eventually burned up in the atmosphere. And yet, it hit America. It hit America right where it hurt, in the delusion of American exceptionalism. While in the scientific and military circles the launch had been anticipated, the general public and the press went into panic mode and started asking questions. Why isn't America number one in space? Is America stupid? Um, let me check the news from the place. Uh, Florida men did what? Okay, next question. Maybe American education is lacking. 
Education became a big topic, an issue of national prestige and security. Money appeared in it, especially after the National Defense Education Act of 1958. And it could use that money, it always can. However, as the 60s rolled in, it had already been agreed on that the future of education lay not in mechanical devices, but in computer technology. People like Skinner would be asked how those teaching computers should work. And where that went is a story for another time. Now let's sum up today's amusement park of an episode, with its shooting gallery, its gift shop, and its roller coasters. In the run-up to the 70s, most of the world was familiar with the concept of mechanical simulators, whether for the purposes of entertainment or for quick and efficient training. The machines ranged in complexity and price, from basic arcade cabinets to professional immersive simulation rigs. As years flew by, both were shifting to the electronic side of the electromechanical spectrum. And while a lot of this technology originated in the United States and Europe, by the late 60s Japan was catching up quickly, and in some ways even surpassed the stagnating Western designs. Arcade machines transformed from tests of skill that could earn you a prize, to tests of skill that were simply fun. They looked and sounded better than ever before. But to go back to the question I posed to myself in the end of the previous episode, could these machines play against people? And the answer is... no, not in the arcades at least. Players were challenged to earn the most points with a limited number of shots or balls under a time limit. It required speed and precision, but there wasn't anyone actively trying to stop you. Unless you were cheating or trying to break into the coin box. Even in Sega's missileless air defense game, the incoming waves of enemy planes could not attack and destroy the player's vehicle. Now, if we want a tangible artificial opponent, a real one, we'll have to look for one somewhere else. As B.F. Skinner was dreaming of taking over the world with his army of boxes, his system, dubbed fixed or linear programming, was only one in the emerging field of programmed learning. The other major development in the same field, created independently, had something to do with a new way of reading books. So next time, we'll observe books as they turn a new page in the 20th century. This has been Computer Game Evolution. Thank you for listening and for donating. <laughs>